Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Jay Ruckelhaus about disability rights and next steps. Hello, Jay. Hi, Marcia. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on just graduating Duke University. That's a very big deal. Thank you. I'm excited. And in the fall, you were off to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. Yes. But more importantly, what are you watching on television these days? Well, I'm still mourning the ending of Game of Thrones for this season, so that was incredible. So I've never seen Game of Thrones, but really? I just hear it's a lot of horrible violence. It, it is. It's certainly a lot of violence, but... I can't justify there's that part. There's, none, there's none that part's not redeemable, but there's a lot of really interesting philosophical questions that come up. You know, like just, what? Well, I mean, a lot of people said the early seasons were like an exercise in Hobbes, um, and so we had this sort of state of nature with warring factions that all tried to take over control, and, and nothing ever happened because no one could co- cooperate. Um, so that's one aspect that I found really interesting, and there's actually a lot of women's empowerment in the last season. I hear there's a lot of sexual violence, though. There is, but okay. there's also, you know... Some with the bad, with some good, yeah. Okay. Like the last, well, actually, I can't give them away. I can't give them away. Okay, yeah, no spoilers. Right, Because no people will get very angry right. on the podcast. Okay, so you're watching Game of, you're, you're dealing with your Game of Thrones <laughs> withdrawal. <laughs> um, you have a summer internship, and you're getting ready for this huge change in your life. And one, there are many reasons why I wanted to invite you onto the podcast, but I think the thing that um, I really just kind of love is your activism around disability rights and some of the ways you think about it um, in a very academic sense as well as a policy sense. So could you tell me first about the organization that you founded? Sure. So I started a nonprofit organization called Ramp Less Traveled, um, which is a 501c3 nonprofit um, that helps those with spinal cord injuries in the pursuit of higher education. Um, So it turns out that there are a lot of barriers in place that prevent people who have had serious injuries to get to sort of that next step of higher education. Um, People that go through a really traumatic time, which is something that I actually went through right after high school, um, I found that there were a lot of um, logistical barriers. It's not just sort of the money aspect, although that's of course important, um, but there's a whole lack of sort of support systems at a lot of colleges. Um, There are, it's so rare to actually go and complete a degree that there's so few mentors in place. Um, And so we offer both um, a small scholarship and then a mentoring sort of uh, opportunity. Um, for folks with spinal cord injuries to get to college. And so, I know that we recently celebrated um, an anniversary for the Americans with Disabilities mm-hmm, Act, and I think it's so interesting. First of all, 25 years isn't that, from my old people perspective, isn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, and also, it's this interesting thing around the ADA where people don't quite understand what it means. Mm-hmm. And so I think in my experiences, unfortunately, with a lot of college students, their colleges think it's optional and don't understand that it's the law. Or it creates this, these weird situations where people are sent to the back of buildings or they're sent it, that accessing physical space has this kind of degrading element to it as well. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about kind of like all the barriers, so there's some like real infrastructure access to building things, but what are the other kind of issues that your organization tries to get at? Yeah, I think, so the ADA was passed in 1990 and did immeasurable good for the disability community. It really cemented a couple decades worth of activism you know, to get it in place, and it was this great thing. Um, but as you say, it's far from a perfect law. And I'm actually, I'm actually somewhat critical of the whole ADA 
the, the tyranny of the ADA and sort of the disability framework, and that's, as you say, sort of what people, if they know what it is, think about when they think about disability, because um, I think it creates this whole discourse of like compliance and obligation, and, and when people think about the ADA and their obligations surrounding it, they often get very fearful. How am I going to get sued? What, what are the requirements to not be sued? Um, which, you know, is an important mechanism for addressing harms, but I don't want people thinking just about lawsuits when they think about disability. So in that sense, I think it's, um, it, it's one tool, but it shouldn't be the only tool when it comes to advancing disability rights. Um, so I think a lot of the other ones are just sort of perceptual. Um, I think one of the things I talk a lot about with the people in my programs is that um, people aren't used to seeing people in wheelchairs or blind people or deaf people in high achieving places like places like universities and so besides the structural infrastructural um, access issues to buildings like you said there's really just a lack of um, awareness a lack of uh, empathy even for people who have different ways of moving about the world to get into those spaces um, and so a lot of what I what I try to do to get over those other barriers is just like show people that it's possible and try to talk to people who are involved in administration and psychologists that like you know we all as the ADA says sort of have these rights enshrined in our law but that also that also just manifests as just people going to class like everyone else and and going to acapella concerts and football games and just having a normal college experience um, so I think there, there's a real there's a real positive um, bent to the disability community that I think I'd like to see play a larger role in the conversation going forward. Well, I think that, gosh, you said so many good stuff. Um, one of the first ways that you describe the work that your organization does is talk about trauma. And I think that there's this issue that comes up that if you read some of the literature um, in disability studies, they talk about kind of um, you know, someone they, like um, triumph porn or this mm -hmm. idea that people with disabilities are socially acceptable when they have a good attitude Certainly, about yeah. harm or, you know, just, and, and I think that, you know, I mean, we know each other. So, so there are many ways in which your high achieving, right, is, can be framed within a lot of different contexts depending on how you see the issue, right? And so I think that the fact that you said trauma early on is something that I think is often lost in the narrative, that people have experienced incredibly traumatic injuries or can have traumatic experiences while they're navigating the medical system. And so for young people, how do you make sure that your organization is also attending to that as well as the kind of achievement and the, the things that are easy for people to digest? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, that's interesting you pointed that out because I, I almost never, I guess in, the, uh, in, the capa in my capacity as, in my role with Ramp Plus Traveled, I never really, draw, I try very hard not to emphasize trauma and I try oh. very hard, no, 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 it's totally fine, it's important and, and happy to talk, but I, I try very hard to sort of, um, I, I think people are often emerging from, as you said, these like well traumatic experiences and so they, they hear that enough and they see that enough and so I try to sort of in a very matter of fact and positive tone about how so much is possible following injury. Um, and just a brief aside, if I may, I think, you know, I am somewhat unique in that I have an acquired disability, and those mm -hmm. are the people I work with do as well. Um, but disability is an enormously complex and broad uh, identity category that encompasses, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're hidden in physical disabilities, there are all sorts. So um, uh, my, my perspective is always limited in what I, what 
I can speak for the larger community. Um, but back to your question, yeah, I mean, the medical system, I, I think like the, the focus of disability narratives in the culture is always on sort of like the medical. And that stems from what disability rights advocates in the 70s and 80s started calling the medical model of disability, mm -hmm. um, which basically locates disability in physical impairment and that people are disabled because they have something wrong with their body. Um, and what emerged from that or what that engendered was this really beautiful reaction um, of activists that called, um, they made something called the social model, which instead locates disability in the environment and that people are very really disabled by their environment. So one, excuse me, one can imagine a world that's completely accessible and then the question turns on its head, are people actually disabled, so to speak? Um, I think there are problems with like the philosophical underpinnings of the, the strongest exponents of that philosophy, but I think like its moral thrust has done a lot of good. Um, and that's how I sort of like to think about disability is that thinking about how we can all sort of accommodate people and, and what responsibilities we have there. Yeah. And in thinking about this idea um, of your own kind of proximity to this issue, um, prior to your acquiring a disability, did you think about these things? Oh, not at all, yeah. I mean, yeah. very peripheral. I mean, not more than any other sort of teenage boy. Um, and I think, so I'm a white male from Indiana, and just like my experience with hardship more generally was, was so non-existent compared to, you know, I, and I think in that sense, um, experiencing otherness and, and that sort of thing is, is a, a huge plus. I mean, you, you know, it's allowed me to, I think, empathize more genuinely with um, folks who are experiencing all sorts of struggles. Um, so yeah, absolutely, not really at all. Um, and when you thought about college, what were you thinking about in those days? Oh, I, I guess just, you mean before injury? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess just strong academics and I, it was important for me to have, I'm a very like, uh, uh, community is important to me. So I, I, I really wanted sort of a not competitive cutthroat, you know, uh, environment, so I wanted a, a sense of community as well. But, yeah. You went to Duke. I know, I was, <laughs> which, not saying anything about Duke. <laughs> so that's a joy but you went to a very competitive school. I, in, a, in one sense, yes. Um, mm -hmm. But I really found when I visited a really like surprising sense of like community and, and mm -hmm. collegiality. And I think some of that stems from the school spirit aspect, which uh -huh. emerges from sports. And like, I'm not, I love Duke basketball to death, but like, I didn't before I went. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't really classify myself as an overt sports fan or anything like that. Um, but, but I really do think it makes a difference. And I think people can rally around something. Um, and, and it's cool that in this case, it's a sport, but I think what I found to be more exciting is when people can rally around like an idea or like the solidarity that emerges from movements like the disability rights movement or, or things like that. And what is the presence of such movement kind of organizing at Duke's campus or that part of North Carolina? Yeah. Um, not super strong. Um, okay. I think, yeah, I think diversity conversations have exploded in a great way on college campuses across the country in the past couple of years. Um, in a way that's challenging and, and conversations that need to be had. I think disability is very often missing from those conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I honestly don't have a good reason for why that is. Like, I think it mirrors the larger national conversation. Like, the gay rights movement has um, earned a place in the national conversation as has racial minority conversations um, in a way that the disability rights movement hasn't. So it's not like it's an either or, like mm -hmm. competing against each other thing, but I just don't think that's coalesced as strongly as it could. Um, th all that said, I don't consider myself, or I haven't, like 
I, I think there are many paths to make change and many sort of models of change. And I don't consider myself like best at like organizing, like or protesting or that sort of thing. Like I'm just not, yeah, as temperamentally suited and that sort of thing. So <laughs> I don't know. You don't um, have the temperament for it. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I maybe, maybe I think I, I found myself like my natural inclination is to like as you like think about things and like write about things and like you, you know not that any one path is better than another because mm -hmm. all are necessary i just like i found that to be the case i don't know well do you think that this is um that this movement issue is about i mean there so there's so many ways that we can think about it right so there's the the persistent problem of ableism and um i think an overwhelming desire to collapse a community right so someone sees me and they this is i just wrote a piece about how everyone, um, the way that every time a person has a grievance with the state, they're part of Black Lives Matter, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes this way of saying, well, this person's a Black Lives Matter activist and they're not, they're a person who has a grievance with the state and they're mm -hmm. going to do these things, right, that are outside of the, these boundaries. Um, and in similar ways, when we think about disability, we are talking about a very diverse and disparate group of people um, who may have a different relationship to that identity mm -hmm. and to try to get people kind of moved in that in, in a singular direction is difficult mm -hmm. always um, but I also think that this idea of college students as a distinct group within a community that organize together um, is, di is difficult generally but you know have colleges been a space where students with disabilities organize or coalesce and plug into like a larger umbrella organization to learn organizing tools and to have um, those mechanisms both on the ground and on a national level, I'm not entirely sure. I know that um, back in the day there was a group called Barrier Free, mm -hmm. but I don't know if they have the same kind of presence on college campuses that they used to. Yeah, my, my re I think no, I think the short mm -hmm. answer, I mean, I think like, in California in the 60s and 70s, that's really where disability rights movement, the modern one in the US really blossomed. And that was at sort of the, the UC campuses, um, Berkeley specifically, like that was, mm -hmm. if you were to point one place on the map where it started, well, that would be it. Um, so so yeah, I think it's just, I don't know, I guess not not right now. <laughs> and so in uh, Ramp Less Traveled, um, how do you form a network with the students in the program? So we're very small and very young still. Okay. So right. Um, so it's the third year of scholarship recipients, um, whose names will be announced this week. Exciting. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. Do you like oversee that selection process? I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's so exciting. Um, it is. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, so for now, I you know I've sort of been the primary point of contact for uh, most of the, well all the people who have gone through the program because I you know, that's just sort of the way it's it's been easiest to do. Um, you know when I went through the process I had. When I went through the college application process or college re-entry process, I had a lot of support from my family and from my community and was privileged enough to go to a well-resourced institution that could help me. And I sort of had all this going right and it was still really hard. And we yeah. still made a lot of mistakes and we still uh, tried a lot of roads that turned out to be dead ends. And so I am able to pass that along to, to those just now going through the process. Um, but the goal moving forward is to sort of have those who have already gone through the program act as the mentors that can that can then help uh, so it sort of forms a, a little bit of an organic community um, how, how long were you away from school a year mm -hmm. yeah so i hadn't started yet at duke and then took a year off and then started the next fall and um in that 
anticipation to start, what were some of the things that were kind of most pressing? Um, hmm. I think just like the my mantra during sort of my year off was get to do, get to do. You know, it was this like college is my salvation thing. And school had always been important to me, but I'd almost forgotten what it was about school that I, you know, loved so much and that was going to be so redeeming. Um, so I think the biggest challenge was just like, how can I picture myself in a classroom again with like other people? Like, how will I, like it was literally the image, like I could not form the image, like what would it look like? You know, where would I be sitting in the room? And like all these all the small questions that worked themselves out. Some of them, the first day I got back, I was like, oh, well, that is obviously how that was gonna happen, you know? And so um, I think just really the image and, and the lack of, you know, the lack of, I guess, role models. You know, I had, I had some, but, but not nearly as many as might've been helpful. And so it was the anxiety of like, where do I fit here? Right, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And in talking to other um, scholarship recipients, what are some of their concerns about going to college? I think a lot of it is similar. Um, I think like the social life aspect, just to, like broader from like the vision, you know, like what, how am I gonna, you know, cause the school is one aspect and everybody, you know, finds their own uh, way of accommodating schoolwork, which is totally doable. Um, and then it's sort of like, well, how do I create, how do I form a new life, almost, you know, in, in my relations with other people? Um, and I think that's something that I almost have universally found becomes like a non-issue shortly after college starts. Um, as, you know, as great as it was before, I think people underestimate the extent to which they remain the same person and are able to still relate to others in a totally fun and normal, you know, college way. Um, Is there a sense that, um that something has changed about you as a person? There is, and it has, you know, that there is something. You inevitably do relate to people in a diff somewhat different way, or at least they, you know, put you in a certain position. Um, but those things are not immutable, you know, and people adapt, and I think college is a great place for that to happen because everyone is on their own for the first time, mostly, and everyone needs help finding the laundry mat, you know, and, and all these things. And I think that's why I emphasize, you know, college is important for people with spinal cord injuries, obviously because of the employment, opportunities have changed. Um, the, you know, a lot of things have changed that make college more important, but I think just like going to a social life, you know, a new social environment and immersing yourself is like the best way to um, sort of, yeah, get back to where you were. In your experience, um, do you find that a lot of young people who have had spinal cord injuries that there is an impulse for maybe families to keep them close by? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Is that a thing? Oh, was that yeah. a struggle with your own parents? Um, they always accepted the fact that I was going to go to college. Like, that was never superficially a problem. Um, but I think it was really hard still for me to leave because you, you are put in a very vulnerable situation and, like, I think parents are often afraid to send their kids to college anyway. And, like, when they may need more help than before, it's, it's difficult, and I think I found that to be the case. Um, but I think they found, like, once I started at Duke, how happy I was and I was thriving and that they were never, you know, it was never too big of an issue, I don't think. <laughs> so now you're heading even further away Very, yeah. <laughs> Indiana. A little further. Um, so you are one of 32 Americans who selected as a Rhodes Scholar. Does that feel weird when people say it to you? It still hasn't sunk in, yeah. Yeah, because it's like the fanciest prize It is, ever. and like, I somewhat resist, like, there's, there's such a... A baggage. There is a baggage, right. And, and it, of course, sounds terribly 
I think acknowledging that almost sounds more privileged than actually having, you know, <laughs> life is so hard now, you know, but <laughs> of course don't mean to say that, but I think like, how can I still remain an authentic person and, and, uh, and how can I be worthy, not worthy, you know, well, in a sense, like worthy and, and take advantage of this thing that I've been given and, yeah. and make good with it. And so when you um, think about this kind of life in the UK, um, what do you imagine? Yeah, well, I, I was lucky enough to study at Oxford before, after mm -hmm. freshman year for a summer, um, just, well, I guess for eight weeks or so. Um, so I'm somewhat, uh, I guess the vision problem isn't as great as it was before I started at Duke, but, um, but yeah, I hope to get a lot. But the thing I immediately think of is rain, which I'm not looking forward to. Oh so my gosh, much. it's constant moisture. I, oh, and that's not so good with the chair and then with, yeah. I just like the sun. Um, so that's one aspect, but I'm really, really excited. Like, I can't wait. Um, as much as I love my undergrad experience, I can't wait to sort of sit down with books and like really go deep with questions and like read all the footnotes in a reading that, you know, I- You're like the only person who's ever said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you, Georgetown students, I'm sorry, I think you might be my favorite student of all. Well, see, that's what I was like at Duke though. Like I-, I But you didn't have time. Was doing a million things, right. I didn't have time, like all the other Truman students, you know, we were all doing a million things, which is great and I learned a lot, but like, I'm excited to like focus on books and focus on people, you know, just like, just have these two, I don't know, these two foci and just do that really, really intently. And so my, I've visited the UK a few times. Mm -hmm. um, in the European context, accessibility is a little further behind, you would think, than the US, or have they caught up? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. Um, I've only been to the UK, so mm -hmm. I know that the disability rights movement really mirrored, if not predated, the U.S. one. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, like, actually more radical thinking and activism in London mm -hmm. um, in, like, the 60s and 70s. Something called the Union for the Physically Impaired Against Segregation, UPIAS, and they did a lot of really cool stuff. Um, so in that sense, it's, I mean, and they have a law like the ADA. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the problem is that everything's so old, and so right. it's so hard to modify things. The British love their history and, you know, their <laughs> that sort of thing. So... Um, in that sense, it's different. Um, so there will definitely be challenges there that yeah. aren't, aren't here in D.C. for sure. And so what do you feel like your time at Oxford will prepare you to do? <laughs> uh, I can't answer that concretely, unfortunately, but I, I just really want to think more deeply about like what democracy means now. Like I, so that's what I, I'll be doing a master's in political theory, um, and that's what I ended up sort of to the extent that I focused in college, focusing in that um, because I love politics, I always have, but I really fell in love with the philosophical like perspectives on it, um, really going deep with questions about what justice looks like and, and how do we translate that into real political institutions and that sort of thing. Um, so I hope I get time to come to some conclusions on all of that, you know, preliminary conclusions and, and think about, I guess, both, you know, what is the ideal government and then how can that best be approximated in the world. Um, all that said, um, as we've talked before, I thought a lot about being I'm an academic, but I've sort of, Yay. I have, I, I've shifted I somewhat totally away. Now, but you're like, you've thought more, and it seems so not fun. I mean, I think it would be fun, but I think I would be somewhat restless at some point, at least in the political theory field. Um, so I think I would like to do something a little more direct or something like that. So um, I, I, I hope to be always engaged in ideas, but I, I don't know if I'll go on to get a PhD. Like, I'm pretty sure I won't. Um, so, so I'm not sure exactly what, you know, what combination I'll be. I'll be doing after Oxford, but. And so when you think about um, kind of 
um, you know, the roots that you have planted with your organization and, um, you know, where would you like to see it go? Yeah, um, the short answer is that's still a question I'm thinking about and I, and I want to keep thinking about it before I make any quick decision, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but if I could speak more broadly before answering it, I think like my work in disability advocacy has profoundly affected my intellectual trajectory as well and things that seem unrelated. Like I think when I realized that I was interested in accessibility, I, I really thought deeply about what that looks like and it becomes immediately obvious that it doesn't just concern disability rights, it concerns well, it concerns a whole lot of things, but what got me, what, what piqued my interest was, was the democratic theory, was how can we make a government in a society that is truly accessible for all citizens? Um, and that's, you know, touches on voting rights, it touches on campaign finance, it touches on redistricting, it touches on a whole host of questions. Um, and so I, I'm really interested in, in this idea of accessibility broadly defined. Um, so I hope to, I hope to, I don't think disability rights will ever be the center stage of my career, but I, I always hope to be involved in it um, and to sort of, um, as I've had good examples, read examples of those after me. Um, so long way of saying that I'm not totally sure. I, I, I hope Ramp Plus Travel will continue to grow and will continue to um, show both universities and people with disabilities that college is attainable and desirable and um, awesome if they want it to be. Um, what do you think universities miss in that equation? Mm -hmm. um, a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Like a whole bunch I, of stuff? I start? Yeah. No, I think some are good, but most, I think, every school has like an accessibility office or a school a disability office by law. They have to have somebody that, that does that at least part-time. Um, but the problem is I think that there, there's such a disconnect between what they do and what like the rest of college administrators whose job is to make college an enriching environment do, mm. um, like student affairs people, as you know, it's an obvious example, um, who are really in charge of making sure students can thrive and, and do what they want to do. Um, whereas disability rights officers are always like, how do we not get sued? How yeah. can you get into the back of this building and do that? And then that's it. Um, so if there was more integration there, I think, um, I think students might be able to thrive a little more. And so for someone like myself who is a professor, mm -hmm. um, what are some things I need to start thinking about that I may have missed about using the accessibility resources on campus and maybe innovating some rules? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Um, I, think, I think asking the question is the best thing to start doing. But I think like, just like logistically, I think all professors usually get an email or some communication from a disability office if they have a student with a disability. Um, so, I think don't treat that as like a bother, but treat it as just an opportunity to be able to serve your students the best that you can. Um, and a lot of students will sort of approach the professor and say, hey, like this is what's going on. Like, and I think just like be willing to have, make a game plan and like be willing at the beginning to sort of figure things out and make them as comfortable as possible. Um, that's the way to go, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, I will ask you the last question I ask okay. everyone on the podcast. Uh -oh. If there's one thing you wish you could have told all your professors, when you were in college, what would it be? I had such great professors. Um, they probably helped me talk enough for a lifetime. Um, hmm. it, it's a question that deserves a good answer, so I'm trying to think of one. Mm, take your time. Um, That's why we have editing. If there's one thing I could tell all of my professors, 
I guess, honestly, like, I don't know if this is a cop-out, but I would just say thank you. Like, I think almost universally I had, like, professors who were not just, like, great academics, but people who were invested in me personally um, and in my success. And, like, that's something I honestly wasn't expecting going into college. Like, I didn't feel like I had that in a lot of my other sort of levels of education, and I, I found it to be overwhelmingly true. Um, so I would say thank you for allowing me to get to where I am, and, and I hope to stay in touch. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jay. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. What a great conversation. That was great. Yeah. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marcia Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours a Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.